What's up, beautiful people? It's Father Jason from the Church of the Nativity in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, and this is another episode of Soul Searching. Today, we're going to be talking about Isaiah and the prophetic imagination. This is our second episode of our three-part Advent series on Isaiah and the prophetic imagination. And we're going to talk about Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. So why are we talking about this text? We're talking about this text because it is popular, especially within the church and even known outside of the church. There is a hymn that is commonly sung in Advent. We sang it this past Sunday um, at my church. Comfort, comfort ye my people. It's based on this text from Isaiah 40. Also, there's a famous part of Handel's Messiah that is based on this text from Isaiah 40. Because also it is the uh, text for Advent 2 in year B, which was this past uh, Sunday. And, um, but mostly it's important for us to take a look at because of its connection to John the Baptist. All four of the Gospels reference John the Baptist and reference him in relationship to this passage from Isaiah. In the case of Mark that we heard this past Sunday, even outright quoting it or near getting close to quoting it exactly. You know, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Um, for those of you who are Godspell fans, that's how the, that musical begins, is with John the Baptist singing, prepare ye the way of the Lord, again, based on Isaiah 40. Now, with all these popular references to John the Baptist and uh, Handel's Messiah and, Ad, and Advent uh, in the Christian church, we can read Christ into Isaiah 40 pretty easily. Um, that, that's something that comes natural to us. However, it is interesting, and the context that I want to explore today is let's read Isaiah in the context of Isaiah, in the context of the prophetic imagination, what we talked about last week, and then what does that tell us about Jesus? Instead of what does Jesus tell us about Isaiah? What does Isaiah, what, if we look, understand this prophetic imagination in a deeper way because of this text from Isaiah, how does that inform Jesus's ministry um, instead of the other way around? So um, that's what we're going to dive into today. Like I said, we're going to look at this through the lens of the prophetic imagination. This is an idea put forth by uh, Walter Brueggemann, Professor Walter Brueggemann. And the prophetic imagination, as we mentioned last week, is to nourish, nurture, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture. The prophet, uh, through the prophetic imagination, instigate, um, causes others to imagine. Through the prophet's proclamation, we begin to imagine a different world. And the proclamation also criticizes the current dominant culture, but not in a way that uh, is, is um, futile. It's not saying, oh, everything's wrong and there's nothing we can do about it. Rather, it says it, it criticizes in a way that creates energy that energizes people to imagine and hope and to act to bring about a different reality to believe deeply. It causes people to, to believe deeply that the way it is is not the way it has to be, 
while also motivating them to create a different, a different world to change the status quo. That's what prophets do. Um, and Brueggemann describes this action of prophets, this utterance, this proclamation as the prophetic imagination. So this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 41 through 11, can, we can look at it in, from three parts. First, the introduction comes after a long pause. We'll talk about what we mean by that, but it's a pause in Isaiah between uh, chapter 39 and verse 40. The middle section, uh, we can look at it as a uh, announcement by the heavenly court or a conversation that we're getting to listen into by the heavenly court. And the last is a call narrative to the prophet of second Isaiah. And we're going to get into that in a little bit more, but also a call to us. And we're going to talk about that down the line in just a minute. But first, what do I mean by a pause? Okay, so this is the beginning of second Isaiah. We talked about last week there that we can think of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in three big sections, one through 39, 40 through 55, and then 55 through 66 through the end of the book. First, second, third Isaiah. It's all in the way it's presented in most modern um, Bibles and in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, editions of the Hebrew scriptures as it's, it's in there as one book, but it's really three books from three distinct different time periods. And so the first, first Isaiah probably was written in uh, the late 600s and no earlier than 700 BC. Um, and that's before the fall of Jerusalem, but both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, where Israel, where uh, Jerusalem uh, is and was, were under threat from the Assyrians. Um, and Assyria uh, is invading, it takes the northern kingdom completely and, and is invading the southern kingdom and, and sieging, uh, besieging Jerusalem often as well. Eventually, Assyria falls and Babylon rises, and it does the same thing, comes in, takes the northern kingdom, and is successful in taking Jerusalem as well and taking the southern kingdom. That happens in 587. Um, so first Isaiah is in the context of a, of a besieged people, beleaguered people, and second Isaiah is in the context of exile. When Jerusalem falls in 587, um, large amount of people and especially all the leadership um, in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom of Judah gets hauled off to Babylon to exile in Babylon. And so those are two different contexts for these different sections. There's also a lot of time. We believe um, that second Isaiah probably starts coming together or get the person that second Isaiah is attached to existed around 540. Uh, again, Jerusalem fell in 587, so it's, it's, that's a relatively shorter period of time, but the, it was coming all the way back in 700 when first Isaiah was saying, look, if you continue to ignore the poor, this is going to happen. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to follow God's will to protect the poor and the, um, the widow and the orphan, then these countries that keep attacking us eventually are going to be successful. That comes about. And everybody's hauled off into exile, and then the tone changes. 
We've gone from a warning to this hopeful decree. We hear this in the first two verses. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her, for her term of service is ended. Her crime is expiated, for she has taken from the Lord's hand double for all her offenses. Okay, so basically Israel did wrong. The uh, northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah did wrong. Okay, and they pay a price for it. They get hauled off into exile, but they, that is not permanent. God has heard their cry in exile and is proclaiming that's not going to, you're not going to stay there. You've paid double more, double more than what you needed to for your offense. You're coming back. So this is, this is a, happening while Babylon is at the height of its power and they have them in captivity and exile. And yet the prophet is proclaiming, nope, this, the way it is, is not the way it has to be. We can go home. And that's coming. Um, God says so. God says so. And that's important as we look at the second section, this notion of divine decree. It is a decree by the ruling God. God is Lord and ruler and king. And he's speaking in kingly terms here. The voice of the prophet is saying this is a decree from the king, the true king, which is God. Not any particular person, the true king is God, and the king has made a decree, so it's on everybody to make that happen. And that's what we get in the second section, the heavenly court. Now, again, this is the part that gets attached to John the Baptist, and we hear it that way um, as Christians most uh, commonly. However, within the context of Isaiah, um, Brueggemann argues that this is what we're getting to hear is a conversation going on in the heavenly court. So the, the king, God, has made this decree, and so then the heavenly court rushes to go, okay, well, how do we bring this about? If Jerusalem has paid her due, we got to bring Jerusalem back. How do we do that? And they propose, the heavenly court proposes, a superhighway. We hear this in verses 3, 4, and 5. A voice calls out in the wilderness, clear a way for the Lord's road, level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted high and every mountain brought low and the crooked shall be straight and the ridges become a valley and the Lord's glory shall be revealed and all flesh together see that the Lord's mouth has spoken. So God has made this decree and the heavenly court wants to make it obvious to everyone that the decree that Jerusalem can return um, is obvious. So it wants to build a super highway from Babylon to Jerusalem so that the exiles can come home fast and it be not only facilitates the return of Jerusalem but proclaims to all the nations that God's power that's what the heavenly court proposes now this notion of heavenly court you know we're in about 500 BC BCE all the way up through the time of Jesus there uh, and in the ancient world in the ancient mind um, the happenings on earth were a mirror reflection of the happenings in the heavenly court. Think of uh, the Il Iliad and the Odyssey. The gods are fighting in the heavenly court in the Iliad, so then this war happens on earth, right? Same ideas get tossed around in the later prophets um, and in the New Testament as well. This notion of what is happening in the heavenly courts uh, gets reproduced 
in a different way. It's manifest in the earthly realm, right? Um, we think of the gospel scripture that says, whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. Whatever you bind will be bound on earth. We bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Okay, it, that, that's another expression of the same idea of the heavenly court. So the heavenly court is having this discussion. Okay, the king has made this decree. The king, God, has made this decree. We've got to bring it about. Is the, the, let's, let's build a superhighway so they can, this can happen fast. Now, if we think about within the context of Isaiah, first Isaiah was in the 700s, Assyrian as a, Assyria, Assyria, as a superpower in that region of the world, lasted a longer than Babylon did. So in some way, well, we might look at like, okay, they were in captivity for over 30 years as a long time. They were in exile for over 30 years as a long time relative to the couple of hundred years that Assyria was besieging the country. Um, you know, it, that is fast, is a fast construction of a superhighway in a way to bring them back. Babylon eventually falls to Persia, which is being led by Cyrus and is the main superpower in that region um, until Alexander the Great comes along and the Greeks rise. So uh, in Second Isaiah and later, we get this notion of Cyrus being God's called one, God's anointed one to bring the people back. Um, but the super the superhighway in, in 40 is the first mention of, okay, it's coming back quick. Jerusalem's going to come back quick. The last section is a call narrative. It's the verses 6 through 11. And it says, a voice calls out saying, call. And I said, that's the prophet, what shall I call? All flesh is grass and all its trust like the flowers of the field. Grass dries up, the flower fades, for the Lord's wind has blown upon it. The people indeed is grass. Grass dries up, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. On a high mountain go up, O herald of Zion, raise your voice mightily, raise it, do not fear. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Look, the master Lord shall come in power, his arm commanding for him. Look, his reward is with him. He wages before him. Like a shepherd, he minds his flock. In his arm, he gathers lambs. And in his lap, he bears them, leads the ewes. Okay, so it's a call narrative. And in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, there's a, there's, a, there's a particular pattern to call narratives. We see it with Moses. We see it with Isaiah. We're going to talk about the one for Isaiah and Isaiah 6. There's always the call is issued, and then there's resistance. Um, Moses says, I, I, I have a speech impediment. I can't go talk to Pharaoh. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says, I am profane. I, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not clean. Uh, I am unclean. I can't do this. Um, and in Isaiah 6, there's this vision of the heavenly court again. And one of the seraphim take a hot coal and bring it and touch it to his mouth. And he said, you've been purified. Now go speak and I will be with you. That's the third thing. There's uh, the there's resistance. And then there is persistence by God. The call does not go away. Your denial and resistance of it doesn't remove it. The call sticks. And then there's a promise. And the promise is always that God will be with you um, in a call narrative or with us in a call narrative. And that's what we hear in uh, six through 11, God says, 
go proclaim this. And the prophet says, what? The people are like grass. They're just going to fold. They're just going to fall over. They're just going to be blown in the wind. And God says, mm -mm. nope, say it anyway. Go stand on a high mountain and proclaim, I am with you. This is happening. Um, so that's the, the call narrative that we hear in verses 6 through 11. And that's that imagination to a new way of being in the faith that God is with us. So that's a little conversation about Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. And if we think about Isaiah 40, here's some reflection questions for you. And if we're thinking about Isaiah 40 through the lens of prophetic imagination, how does the divine decree in the beginning of it, oh, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, how does that divine decree spark imagination? Or what, how is your imagination sparked by those words? And does the divine court's idea of a superhighway built for those returning from exile criticize Babylon, the Babylonian empire, the status quo, the dominant culture of the time? If so, how? How can you answer this call narrative of verses 6 through 11 in your own life? What resistance do you put up to God's call? Where do you see God's promise of presence manifest in your life? I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are and what your reflections are to these questions. Um, if any one of them kind of sticks in your head, I'd love to hear about it. Drop me an email or put something in the comment section on social media where we post these videos. We'd love to hear from you about those. Okay, we've got one more week. Next week, we're going to look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. We're going to look at that because that is the Old Testament reading for Christmas Day, uh, and um, or at least one of the options you can choose for Christmas Day. And what we'll be using for our Christmas Eve service uh, at the Church of the Nativity here in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. Again, I'm Father Jason Emerson. I'm coming to you from the Church of the Nativity in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. We really would appreciate if you're watching this video and have not yet subscribe to our channel uh, that helps out and like this video as well it helps out the video and helps us out um, as well and you'll get this content if you subscribe you'll get it delivered right to you notified when it comes to you it's posted on youtube you'll get notified right away that's what you get for subscribing so we hope you'll do that um, and more importantly we hope that you remember always always remember no matter what, God loves you more than you can possibly imagine.